And has she you frozen or are you just weird? He's just hiding. Huh? Oh, I'm just, I'm sitting comfortably, as the gays do. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where we use our brain cells to navigate new complex topics. My name is Sienna. I'm a PhD student at McGill University. My name is Beth. I'm a particle physics PhD student at Sapienza University of Rome. And my name is Alistair, and I'm an analytical PhD student at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. An analytical PhD student. Yeah. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) What's an analytical PhD student? We analyze the PhD. Should I say that again? (laughs) No, I like it. It's up to you. We can call you an analytical PhD student. <laughs> Final set again. Hold on. I really want this to be left in. And my name is Alistair, and I am a PhD student in analytical chemistry at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Nice. Great. So. And we're the PhD three. To- oh, yeah. <laughs> we don't have to say that. We are the PhD three, though. It's true. So I would like to say, Sienna, yes. that you have kept secret from us what your topic was going to be this week and i have been on the precipice of my seat this entire time <laughs> i the seats have precipices precipi um my like you <laughs> you have you do such interesting topics and i'm really excited i i concur okay alan's kind of mad because like he helped me come up with the um idea for the stem cells episode but I, when I said it, I was just like, a friend helped me. <laughs> and he also really helped me prepare for the olfaction episode, because that was like, he was in an olfactory <laughs> lab. So he's like, Sienna, you're not giving me lots of credit. So credit to Alan. He's great. He's really helpful. Full of ideas. And yes. Smart. Okay. Um, so this has been kept secret from us, and I, I'm really curious what the topic is. And did Alan help you with it? Alan did not help me with this topic. This one was all my own. <laughs> Don't worry. No... <laughs> stealing of topics today miscrediting yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no miscrediting of topics this one was my own i mean as much as it can be anyone's to talk about a topic in science because people have talked about this before and we'll talk about it after and probably way better than i will but i think it's one of the kind of most cool things you kind of learn in neuroscience that like you maybe never thought of especially if you were like don't have a background in neuroscience so that's why i wanted to do it for you guys because i'm like you're i think I hope. Fingers crossed, you guys are just going to be blown away by this concept. And that's why I also didn't want to tell you what it was in advance, because I didn't want you Googling or even, like, thinking what the words might mean. So... I am so ready. Okay. (laughs) So, today we are going to talk about cells that are called place cells. So, have you guys heard of place cells before? No. No. Like, cells that sit in a place? Yeah, it sounds like a physics concept where they, like... (laughs) name something because it's just there it's in its place so it's a place cell that does sound like something a physicist would do yeah (laughs) i love the logic behind why you think it was named that and you're very close but you're not right (laughs) (laughs) but you tried but you we're gonna so we're gonna talk about place cells because they're really cool cell type and they're involved in spatial navigation Ooh. Ooh, snap 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 so when i said the podcast where we use our brain cells to navigate new complex topics whoa i wish i'd got a, sn- a screenshot of alice's face right there <laughs> his eyes like widened yeah. about three miles big <laughs> well because on the olfaction episode 
or an earlier episode, we kind of briefly discussed spatial navigation as one of the senses. I kind of said that, like, you know, one of our senses oh. is the ability to know oh, yeah, like where we are position. in space. Yeah, I think yeah, I yeah. kind of, yeah, I kind of said that. And so... Yeah. yeah, so this is not necessarily related to that. Okay. But... No, no, but... but this is... Place cells are involved in spatial navigation. Yeah. And the idea of knowing where you are in space and having a spatial map in your brain. Cool. And so... I'm going to go into a bit of background first because we're going to talk about like brain structures and brain anatomy a little bit just because they are located in a specific place in the brain, but that's not why they're called place cells. Um, <laughs> so first of all... It's, wait, these are, they're neurons. These are neurons, yes. Okay. We're talking about neurons today. They're okay. a very special kind of neuron. If you ever are interested more in neuroscience and like seeing what neurons look like and looking at pictures of them, Ramoni Cajal is this like incredibly famous neuroscientist who uh, just did a ton of characterization of what neurons look like. So he would stain them with very specific stains. And this was like back in like the 19, early 1900s. And then he would draw them by hand. And so there's all of wow. these beautiful illustrations of pyramidal cells. If you ever want to look them up, we'll probably hmm. maybe share one with our episode too. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't really have a strong feeling for what these things look like. So I'm excited to see our Instagram post, which, yes, exactly. which will come alongside. But okay, we're going to talk about just anatomy of the brain. So we are talking about neurons this whole episode. I'm not going to go into any other cell types. So um, neurons live in the brain. And there's like different lobes to the brain. So one that everyone might know of is the frontal lobe, which sits right behind your forehead and is like involved in complex reasoning and thought, supposedly, you know, like these types of things. So everybody thinks of that as the like higher function processing area. And this is the frontal lobe is like mainly cortex. So cortex is this outer sheet that wraps, it's the foldy bit, but it's, if you just took off it, you would just lay down out flat. It's just a flat sheet and underneath it, kind of in towards the interior of our brain are all of these other brain structures that are deeper brain structures that you maybe don't think of as often when you think of the brain, because when you think of the brain, you think of the foldy bits on the outside, but that's actually only like one piece or layer of the brain called the cortex. So we're going to talk about a little bit about the cortex at the end, but mostly we're talking about this deeper brain structure that you will have heard of, but you may not have like known where it was or like anything called the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Ring any bells? I know something about the hippocampus. That's because your hippocampus um. remembers. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I'm what? Your hippocampus is doing that work for you. Oh, really? Yeah, so your hippocampus is the memory center. I thought it was, like, emotions. It's, no. The cortex, there's portions of the cortex that are more responsible for emotional processing, we think. Emotional, emotion processing is, like, very difficult to interrogate scientifically though because obviously a lot of what we study happens in animals and we don't really know anything about animal emotions like we know when a rat is relaxed or feels safe but like is that happy or sad mm, we don't know so it's hard to kind of study emotions mm. we study fear yeah, a lot okay. as an emotion which it's like it's a different kind of study and fear is located in a very specific region as well called the amygdala but we're not going to talk about that today Again, a deeper brain structure, so not part of the cortex. But the hippocampus itself is kind of these two horns that like project, that are in like the center, deep center of your brain. So if you just go like straight down through the top of your head, kind of, and into your brain in the center, they kind of project out like horns. So curving out towards the side of your head, out and around towards mm -hmm. the front too. 
And so they sit right underneath this other lobe of the cortex on both sides called the temporal lobe. So the temporal lobe is temporal as in it's on the sides. Mm-hmm. And if, if you can picture a brain, which maybe some people can, maybe some people can't, you can see that on the sides it has kind of like two other main lumps that kind of stick out. And those are the temporal lobes. So it has like the frontal lobe, which is all kind of like homogenous, like a like a ball essentially, or like a football because it's kind of shaped like an American football. tapered in some ways. And then on the two sides, then there's also two flaps <laughs> kind of on the sides. Then those are the temporal lobes, and right underneath them, inside towards the middle of your head, is where the hippocampus is. Cool. And the hippocampus, like I said, is famous for its role in memory. So it's mm-hmm. where we believe long-term memories are stored because of these um, experiments by mainly Brenda Milner on this patient called HM who had lost a large portion of the hippocampus from a neurosurgery related thing. I think it was for epilepsy and then lost their memory. So they couldn't remember things for like longer than eight minutes or something like that. Like they had working memory, which is what you're doing when you're just told to like, when you memorize a phone number and then go and dial it in, that's your working memory. And it's done by the frontal lobe, which is we know we talked about at the front of our head, but like long-term memory, like remembering who people are, remembering where you are, that's managed, appears to be managed by the hippocampus based on what we know when we remove the hippocampus mm-hmm. and what happens. Second interesting point about this is Brenda Milner, who, Dr. Brenda Milner, who's famous for this discovery of memory in the hippocampus due to this patient that she worked with and like doing all these memory tests with them, is works at my institute. Really? She is... She turned 101 years old this year, and oh she still goodness. runs a lab there, and we celebrate her birthday every year at my institute. She still runs a lab? Yeah, you can sometimes what? see her coming to work and, like, going up the elevator to her lab. Oh, my gosh. She hangs out there. She comes to the birthday celebrations every year. We all get cake. The whole institute gets cake. I want to still be working when I'm 101. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it's incredible, right? Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Anyways. That's kind of a cool little personal connection to the story. Yeah. And so the second part of the background that I wanted to provide for you for neuroscience. So we covered brain anatomy. Now we're just a reminder of the general anatomy of a neuron. So it has a cell body, which is just the house of everything, proteins, nucleus, whatever. And then it has dendrites where it receives signals, these kind of like tree-like branches and other neurons send signals to it through its branches. And then it sends signals down through its axon in the form of like this like electric chemical gradient that's propagated really fast across the axonal membrane kind of so in order to understand this episode we need to know that when a neuron sends an action potential or a signal along its axon this is mean it's it's doing a job so it's it's doing its task whatever that task is and that means it's active it's firing it is encoding something so a firing neuron is an active neuron it's kind of it's kind of like in our olfaction episode when you know the chemical is sensed by the neuron it then fires away along the chain up to the brain exactly like that so all of firing is doing is telling the rest of the brain or wherever it's sending its axon to it's saying that me in my role as a neuron doing a specific task has gotten the input i need to like tell me to do that task like the environmental signal is there for me, so yeah. I'm going to send a signal forward. And you can kind of simplify it to almost a computer model where it's like a one, not a zero. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So part two of my notes. <laughs> so we covered background. <laughs> and I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we were going to talk about kind of spatial navigation. 
and spatial mm -hmm. maps and brain maps. And so this is kind of like a concept of neuroscience that I don't know how many non-neuroscientists know about, but our brain maps a lot of things. For instance, we talked about in the olfactory system, our brain is mapping different chemicals into kind of those glomeruli, right? So like there are specific mm -hmm. discrete locations in the brain that represent, and specific neurons essentially that represent certain signals. And this is kind of like an olfactory map almost. And so there's other types of maps too. So a famous example of this is Penfield's homunculus, which again, how many people know that outside of neuroscience? I don't know. Do you guys have any guesses what this is? I have, I have heard of that, but okay. Beth, do you want to take a stab at it? No, I think I've <laughs> heard of it too, but I think I might have only heard of it from you, Sienna. Yeah, well, it's like, it's famous, but like, it's hard for neuroscientists to know how famous neuroscience things are outside of our <laughs> little weird neuroscience bubble, right? I like, get that. <laughs> so this is a good gauge for me. That's what we're here for. Okay, I'm going to take my stab at it. Yeah. Is Penfield's homunculus the area of the brain that is uh, susceptible to stroke, and it's the reason that you smell burnt toast when you have a stroke? No. Okay. Never mind that. Oh, that's a really interesting guess, and I don't actually have any idea what what that is. But maybe it is also. Who knows? Penfield's homunculus is this creature, kind of a homunculus, really, that represents oh. that represents. <laughs> it's not an area of the brain. Um, kind of. It represents an area of the brain, and so when I say this, if you go to the top of your top middle of your head. You'll hit the spot and then just go like if you went straight down and touched the cortex, so that outer layer of brain, right on top of your head. This is where like your motor neurons, so the neurons that control your body and movements, and your somatosensory neurons, so the neurons that feel things in your body. So like if something touches your hand, that's then sent to this area of the brain. So it's responsible for like your whole body, both sensing things and moving things. And he kind of mapped this through neurosurgery again and you can put electrodes on people's brains when you're doing like open brain surgery and just send like a little zap and then they would tell you where on their body they felt the zap like where where did that sensation come up and so he created this map of where in our brain our body parts are located essentially Whoa. and it's this really strange creature because it's not at all related to the size of our body parts, right? Like our legs, if, and if you think about it, that makes sense because like our legs don't have a lot of touch sensation associated with them. And so it has much more to do with like how many neurons actually are in an area versus how big that area is physically. So this homunculus has huge hands and huge lips uh. because we have a ton of neurons that like send out their axons into our hands and send them out into our lips. And you can like locate it if you just start at the brain, like top of the brain, and you go down the sides of your head kind of towards your ears on this outer sheath of cortex, you can like, there are different spots that are related to different parts of your body. I definitely think I've seen you, this, like, yeah. I have seen this. Yeah, so I think it's like yeah. something that some, people see yeah. sometimes and hear yeah. about, but maybe don't get like a really thorough explanation of, or like kind of like put it away and are like, oh, that's cool, but then forget about it later. So that's kind of like the idea of a map in terms of your body, mm. I guess. It's also really creepy because it has a huge tongue, like huge lips and tongue and giant yeah. hands and like yeah, the exactly. eyes too because they are involved. Yeah, the eyes yeah. are big. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. But then like a lot of the other pieces are just tiny. Oh my goodness. 
So that's the idea kind of, of a brain map. But another kind of brain map that people were interested in figuring out slash learning about or thinking about in the 1900s as well was the map of our of our environments. So the space around us and the environments we inhabit. And this is because if you think about a lot of research was obviously done teaching rats to run through mazes and getting a reward at the end to understand how rats mm. learn and all of this. But when you train a rat to run through a maze, the question was, is it learning the twists and turns of the maze? Or does it have a spatial representation in its mind of what that space looks like, regardless of the walls, you know? And No, I don't understand. So, like, if you put it in a square box, but there are... Yeah. It's a labyrinth, but inside a yeah, square yeah. box. Does the rat yeah. know that it's inside a square box and have, like, a good understanding of then where it is inside oh, that box, okay. regardless of the walls? Or is it just learning right. that some of these corridors that it's running down okay. lead to dead ends, whereas others will lead to food? And is it just learning the right number of left and right turns? Okay, mm. so is it like um, I enter from the right-hand side and I know that, like, however far down on the left-hand side there's food, or is it I take a right and then a left and then the second right and then two and then the third left and then I exactly. arrive at the food. So, like, how is it representing that space in its mind? Okay, now I understand. Is it a space that is just based on left and right turns and navigating corridors, or does it know that it's inside a box that has yep. corridors? So there was these experiments uh, done by kind of like this behavioral neuroscientist, I guess, on rats. The behavioral experiments by Edward Tolman back around 1950. And so essentially he trained, this was like a huge discussion and he proposed this idea that rats not only, they aren't learning a set of twists and turns, they understand the spatial environment itself in what it looks like. And they, they tested this because there are a couple reasons why they suspected this and then he tested this. So first, if you trained rats to run through a maze or like you put them in a maze and let them run through and kind of learn the maze but without a reward at the end if you count like if you just counted the number of times they go to the place where the reward might be or should be if you had a reward there they obviously aren't going there very much because there's no there is no reward there right but it's mm -hmm. but once you start putting a reward at that spot the rats learned extremely fast like faster than if you had the reward there from the start so clearly they had learned something about the maze that then once there was a reward in one spot of it, they were able to apply and be like, oh, now I want to start going there. Like, I know, I understand the dimensions of the maze, and now that there's a reward in this spot, I'm going to start going there always. So they referred to this as latent learning. So like, even though the rats weren't trained on a maze with a reward, once you put a reward there, they learned really, really fast where the reward was and how to get there. Mm -hmm. And so secondly, which I think was really a clever or interesting experiment that kind of addressed this question is Edward Tolman took rats and trained them. He put them on like kind of like this, they started on this open circular field, I guess, raised platform. So they can't just like run around everywhere, but a raised platform that was circular. And then there was a path with corridors leading with left and right turns leading at the end to a region with food. So the rat would learn to start in this open field, run down the paths with the number of left and right turns, and go find this food. So he trained these rats and they got really, really fast at running to the food, right? Like when they start, they kind of explore and sniff around and like don't run down the paths very fast, but like the faster they learn the association that once I get to the end, there's food, the faster they run the maze. So then what mm -hmm. he did is he just removed that 
component of it, these paths with the uh, walls that led from this open platform, and then put just radial kind of spokes radiating out from the center open platform. And the rats, the majority of the time, would go down the spoke path that would be the direct, like, linear direction towards where the reward had been. So there's no longer a reward there. Oh, okay. But they would, they, so they knew conceptually the location of the food within that map. And they knew it wasn't just, they wouldn't go down, like, the path that had originally been the first kind of turn. When they had yeah. the option, yeah. they would actually take the most direct path to the food, despite having yeah. learned it as a set of twists and turns. That was so clever. And despite the food not being there. Yeah, and despite the food not being there, they would want to explore that path and go see if there's food there. So it was kind of like the rats originally would head north to get to the food, but the food was actually west of yeah. them. And then yeah. when the radial spokes were put in, they didn't go north as they always had. Yeah. They went west because they knew it was exactly. west. Interesting. Ooh, so so cool. cool. Honestly, honestly, who knew the rats had such good spatial recognition? Rats are incredibly smart animals. I wish they could teach me because I have terrible geographical skills. It's probably not as bad as you think, but I, I get the feeling. <laughs> I, know, I know. I also feel like I have terrible spatial skills, <laughs> but generally they're better than you think, but it feels bad because you have to compare yourself to other people who are also equally good or better. Um, yeah, maybe. I I heard something a little while ago that there were um, some early civilizations that used uh, in their language they used direction, not as yeah. left and right and up and down, but as yeah. like north, south, east, and west. And so they had. It's not even. Yes. Yeah, well, right. yes, it's not really north, south, east, and west, but it's like they would talk about their relationship in a larger mm-hmm. spatial configuration, yeah. and they had really good spatial memory and yeah. could no it's a current it's a current tribe i think in australia yeah because i heard exactly the same thing and the other week my friend sent it to me i think she sent it to me before but she sent it to me again um and yeah like it's it's fascinating i just like since learning a second language i've become fascinated by yeah. languages and how they affect your brains Mm-hmm. And Sienna, one day I think you're going to have to do an episode on, could, on something yeah. like that. But um, <laughs> yeah, no. Anyway, all of this to say, if he, either somebody from this tribe or some, some other culture that has this kind of thing, or a rat, could come and give me a lesson yeah. in, <laughs> in remembering paths from A to B, that would be great. Thanks to any rats listening. Hope you're enjoying. So to like address this point you brought up, Alistair, it's there are two types of kind of like two types of ways that you can navigate. Mm-hmm. So one is called egocentric. So you navigate with yourself kind of as the origin. So everything is in reference to yourself. And the other is allocentric. So you navigate using external objects or cues as yeah. your points of reference yeah. essentially and so, often, and so that's like a very allocentric type of navigation yeah and it's interesting because like in english we talk about left and right well your left is yeah. not my left yeah. right and so, yeah. so many yeah. times it'll be like raise your left hand i mean you're right i mean uh well yeah. you know if you're yeah. standing in front of yeah. someone and we even we love left and right and egocentric navigation so much that we even gave boats left and yeah. right yeah yeah Come on, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah it's true and planes i'm guessing but it certainly both have like uses both are very useful ways of navigating yeah. it's just two different ways kind of relating to space 
navigation. Um, so. If we get around to it, maybe I'll link the TED talk that I... I guess you watched mm-hmm. the same one, Alistair, mm-hmm. about so. this. this That'd be cool. Allocentric navigation? Yeah, it's cool. So yeah. These, yeah, that would so be awesome. So these rats are able to navigate kind of allocentrically, sort of? I mean, I don't know if it's allocentric or egocentric, but they certainly... I think the idea is more that they have a concept of what their geometric spatial environment looks mm-hmm. like that is, like, broader than just kind of what they can see. Right. And you know, like they understand when they're moving around an environment, even if they're in, in enclosed paths, they understand how those paths relate to each other as a whole. Right. The concept is called a spatial map. So the idea that you have a map of space sitting in your brain that is not just like a memorized sort of navigation based on turning and whatnot that represents mm-hmm. the actual shape of the environment you're in. And so this is going to lead into place cells. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and PlaySales got a Nobel Prize, by the way, so I was kind of worried that you guys might have heard of it, but glad to know that I get to uh, introduce this to you guys. In 1971, there is a research called O'Keefe, and he reported the existence of place cells. And these were cells in the hippocampus, as we talked about before, so neurons in the hippocampus. And their very special property that he discovered or showed was that they fire based on where the rat is in its environment. So say the rat is in the top right corner of the box, there is one cell that is firing like on and on and on as it's there in that spot. But when it moves somewhere else and as it's moving through those other like places, different cells are firing that will only fire in a certain region of space within that box. And these are called regions of space are called place fields because essentially they're fields of space where a neuron is going to fire and it's not going to fire anywhere else so like basically your brain has drawn a map in your brain and then (laughs) when you're in certain points of the map it's like a mini map in a video game except it's in your brain and different neurons are firing where you are that is wild yeah it is wild pretty cool man so yeah, and so where you guys are sitting right now no. in your room, no. there is a neuron responsible, <laughs> and its only job right now is to just fire because you're in its spot essentially Whoa. in the map. Whoa. So is that how, like, if I were to close my eyes right now, I could still walk around this cluttered room in my house because I kind of know where I am and where objects are. So, kind of. We're gonna get to this a little bit later, okay. a little bit more about this. But to answer your question in short. Yes and no. These place fields will disintegrate over time if you're in the darkness. But there's another navigational system that doesn't disintegrate that we'll talk about later that's very cool, but was not <laughs> right. the center of this episode. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> we're going to oh continue talking about place cells for a second. So, okay, you mentioned something there that they disintegrate. And maybe you're, you're going to get into this, I'm sure. But that was going to be a question I had is you can't map every single place you've ever been all the time. So how... Does your brain decide when to form a map or, oh, or, or these place yeah. cells? Or, and You're asking cells all of the right or? questions. You're asking all of the right questions. Yeah. This is exactly what scientists <laughs> wanted to know. So first, yeah. first I'm just going to tell you, so the space, like the places were not mapped topographically. So mm-hmm. in essence, what this meant is that neurons that were side by side in the brain do not map side by side spaces. One neuron might fire in the top right corner. One neuron might not fire at all in this area. That's so weird. Mm. 
they completely like with it, regards to their own like distribution they're they're not related to that they fire in their places based on something else and we don't know exactly what else how they decide where they fire or where their like field is that they want to fire in we don't know how they decide that exactly but i did want to also so then my next point was that um these were very like soon after observed in humans so we were talking about epilepsy before which is like useful because now epilepsy is kind of like this dysregulated in a sense propagation of electrical signals throughout the brain and it starts at a point so there's kind of like a kernel where this reaction starts and i mean i don't this is maybe not the best explanation of epilepsy but when you're doing surgical resection of epilepsy so when you're doing neurosurgery for it what you're aiming to do is just take out that piece of the brain that's responsible that kind of like sets the seed for like the epileptic um seizure or like mm -hmm. um episode episode thank you for the epileptic episode mm -hmm. and so if you remove that piece of the brain then you kind of don't have this propagation of this uh signal throughout the brain that leads to the episode and so but to find out exactly where that is like exactly where it's located using a bunch of different systems and one of them is that you implant little mini electrodes into people's brains to kind of record from these areas and try and like really pinpoint the exact area where it's coming from and so some of these people actually had mini electrodes implanted in or around their hippocampus mm. meaning that we could because the electrodes are all they're doing is kind of recording from the neuron so you can record from a neuron with an electrode because mm -hmm. it's an electrical signal and you can then analyze that data so they took these patients who had these implants to figure out where their epilepsy was and they had them navigate a virtual reality environment and they found the exact same thing so there were certain neurons that would fire exclusively when they were in one region of this VR environment versus another. That's so weird. And that's kind of evidence that it's not magneto sensing or whatever because virtual reality yeah. you don't actually yeah. walk very far, yeah. but you kind of are tricked by your senses, by your brain that you are in a larger space. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any evidence necessarily that place cells and place fields are at all influenced by the magnetic yeah, no. um no. field itself but certainly like i think the magnetosphere is used in other types of navigation and there's a, lo a lot of systems that control navigation not just mm -hmm. place cells but place cells themselves are kind of like determined by other things right. i think is there absolute space or like the absolute space doesn't exist but like <laughs> what <laughs> we don't have time to go into that but what, what does this mean um that's a very basic physics concept we'll talk about another time um, but like, is it like this place in my room, this, this yeah. neuron fires, or is it like the, like, southwest, not southwest, but like the um, corner on the right facing the door of any room, this? No. Okay. They'll be room specific. That's so weird. Because but I have I have more on that because okay. Alistair also kind of brought that up yeah, earlier yeah. when he was asking about yeah. disintegrating and stuff. So we're going to talk about okay. this in all more right, depth. Right, so right. don't worry. Your question right. will be like answered. So yeah, observed in humans. Another cool thing about these is that like they were found in bats as well. 2D place fields were found in bats that crawl. But recently they recorded from free flying bats in like these large enclosures. 
and they have 3D place fields. What? So, like, as they fly through a spot in the air, that, like, 3D location is now, there's a neuron responsible for that. Wow. So that's way cool. And that's, like, I guess probably all flying animals have some form of this, which it makes sense because, like, they have to map a 3D environment, whereas us and rats typically don't. Yeah, like, we are moving in 2D yeah. directions, yeah. pretty much, mostly. Except when we go up and down stairs, but usually then you're into another mm. 2D room yeah. that you can map. Yeah. So. yeah, you move between... Well, I just had a, I just had a really weird thought about, like, the fourth dimension and stuff, and how, like, we kind of exist on a 2D plane, and can sense three dimensions, yeah. but, like, it's kind of just outside of our... But then, like, maybe bats can see in the fourth dimension. <laughs> I'm just wildly Oh, my God. When we here, get to but... the end, we'll come back to this point as well. Because, with... like, place cells <laughs> nice. were the first of many cells to be discovered that have very specific roles like this in the brain. So we can come back to this at the end. But I don't... I didn't okay. look up... I didn't look I... up a lot, a lot, a lot about all the other types of cells that have been since been discovered. But we'll name some, and some are just going to make you yeah. shiver because they're really cool. Um, <laughs> okay. I just want to. I just want to say before um, any string theorists come at us with fourth dimension hype, like keep it to yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> string theorists, not. Welcome. I am interested. You can, you can send string theorists. You can send them to phd32b at gmail dot com, and I will read them before Beth deletes them. <laughs> so just to like kind of finish up this mm -hmm. summary of what place cells are so cells neurons that fire when you're in like a specific location not just like in a certain room but in a certain place in a certain room so then another thing that people wanted to figure out is like are these cells firing because of like things in the surrounding mm -hmm. environment so is it like they see a cue on the wall so that neuron gets the visual cue and that's why it fires in that spot and the answer was no so essentially, like, if you keep a rat, like, if you have sort of, like, a training cage for a rat where it does its task that it's learning, right? And then you have its home cage. And these are in the same room, and they can see through the, like, walls of both of these cages. There's going to be no correlation between the place cells that fire in the training cage and where they fire in that cage and the place cells that fire in the home cage. Because they're both in the same place. That's so weird. So literally, it just has a different map for these two things. And not only does it have a different map, but this comes back to your point, Alistair. You'll be recording from a few cells in the brain. And so one is going to fire in the top right corner of the training cage. But then that same cell is going to fire somewhere else in the other home cage. Whoa! It might fire in the bottom left corner. Or it might fire in the middle oh. or like slightly offset from the right side. It doesn't, it doesn't. So you can, these place cells kind of remap depending on the environment you're in. Yeah. So they, they're doing double, triple, quadruple duty, essentially. <laughs> Is it just one cell? There's, a, like, tons and tons of these neurons. Okay. Many, many. But we can't, we can't record from all of them. No. We can record from a, a lot, but, like, there's probably thousands of them, at least. I don't know exactly. No, but my question was, like, because you say that there's one cell that fires yeah. in this part of the room, but not in that part of the room. Yeah. But is it only one cell that's firing? Is it is it the combination of firings of certain place cells? That's what I was getting at. They're recording from a single... They can track that signal to a single cell. But yeah. we can't record from every single cell. Yeah. So there is a possibility that like two place fields might overlap mm -hmm. a lot. So there might be two neurons with like kind of slightly different firing patterns. 
there might be, I don't really remember or know if there's like two cells that will specifically encode the same place, but I'm pretty sure nobody's found that. I'm like pretty sure because that would be kind of like a big deal in this. It's typically like you have one cell that you record from that is firing yeah. for one place. And like people map, like we can record from many cells so people can kind of map an entire environment and like the cells that fire in all those different places. And they might be slightly overlapping on the edges. Like the place field is, it kind of like, if you think of it like a bell curve, coming towards like the center of that field is where the neuron fires most high, like most excited, but they like also fires on the edges yeah. of that field. That it just sense. kind of like decays quite quickly. It's firing right. And then doesn't fire in other places. And so of the monitored neurons, when a rat is in the top right hand corner, only they've only found one firing. Yeah. As far oh, okay. as I'm aware, okay. yeah. Yeah, because that was the question. That's, like, like yeah. when we talk... Sorry. Well, no, like, I was just going to... It was my question, too. Like, it would, it would make sense if it was a pattern of neurons firing for that specific location, because then a different yeah. pattern could be yeah. in a different location, giving you yeah. thousands, billions of possible yeah. patterns. Like when we talked about olfaction and how you don't just smell... Like, it's not just one sensor that smells one... Yeah, Odor, I'm pretty sure it's one cell, one place field. Okay. That's so weird. Mm -hmm. um, but, sometimes... then, but then that cell also fires in a different location for a different... Yeah, yeah. and if you have like a yeah. very large environment, then you can sometimes find like one cell with two place fields. Like it might have two place fields in that environment, but there's not going to be any relationship between the like those two places. Mm -hmm. that's conserved right. so it might fire in like if you have a really large environment it might fire in like the top right corner but also then like slightly offset from the bottom left and there's like no if you find multiples of these cells there's no correlation between where these two place fields will be it's just it has to be a larger environment for it to bother i guess pretty much remapping right. and like also encoding another space mm -hmm. and this is still true for environments you've never been in before Yes. So. What? If, well, so. It takes, I think they found, it takes about five minutes for a rat to get a stable spatial map of a new environment. So, like, at first, when you're recording from the place Ooh. cells and you put them in a new environment, some place cells are immediately going to kind of pick a spot and fire at that spot, but other ones take a while to refine their firing location. It takes a few minutes. Sometimes. That's so weird. Yes. Yeah. So this is what I was going to talk about too. So that, like that's like kind of the weird thing is if you have the same cell, it's going to fire in different spots in different locations. And also like if you put them in a new environment, yeah. that cell is going to then figure out it's a whole new place field for that environment. If it, the other thing is some cells don't fire in some places. Like you can be recording from a neuron that fires in the top right of one cage. You put it in a new cage, you won't find a place field for that neuron in that new cage. Just decided not. It doesn't like this. Environment, not not for me. <laughs> so, yeah. do we do we know how many place neurons there are? Let me Google that. Approximately, sure. Just because I'm like, you know, you think about a, a one meter by one meter square, and then you know how big of a room does it need to be to use up all the neurons? Yeah, yeah. Because this is where Beth's question comes in: is like. It would, it would be more efficient for the brain if it was using patterns, like using almost a binary right, system. Right, like combinatory. So, I can't find a quick and easy answer to how many place cells there are in a brain. That's okay. I would go with like thousands, 
upwards of that even probably, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know. So if you're a neuroscientist who studies place cells and you have a guesstimation or, or even like a knowledge of how many place cells there actually are in a rat hippocampus and maybe even a human hippocampus, let us know because I can find it off the top of Google. So sorry, but thousands. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. wait, one other quick question. Um, do you have an idea of the size of the, what do you call it, the place space, the spatial? Yeah, the place field. Place field. Um, place space, I like more. They can kind of vary in size, but yeah. Let I me... guess it depends on the animal. Like humans probably have a larger place field than a rat. So depending on where you are in the hippocampus, they have different sizes, but ranges from looks like 350 centimeters squared to 1700 centimeters squared approximately. Wow. Um, What's your question? My question is, these electrodes and the systems of like data taking from, just in a technical sense, that's so weird. Like, how does that work? You like stick little electrode rods into the brain of a human or an animal, and then what? Like you have wires coming out from them. Yeah. Exactly. And then onto like a, like computer or something that's like sitting on their back or um depends so the the bats when i looked at an image of the bats they must it must be transmitting via wi-fi because there's no wires it's just like a little hat okay thing but yeah rats typically it's wires so that like the you'll like if you ever look at the apparatus there's like a cage and then like the rat has like this little hat with wires coming out and they go like up through the top of the cage and then around to like the recording computer or whatever it is okay so We've been talking a lot about mapping of different spaces and like how fast a map will appear when you're in a new space. Mm-hmm. So in the 1986, this was a completely behavioral experiment again. So they weren't actually recording from any place fields at all. Uh, and this is two scientists called Chang and Galistel. And they were looking at the concept of reorientation. So this is the idea that when, when you're disoriented, so for instance, like you come out of a hotel and you've been like walking around in like the maze of like um, hallways and you're not used to it, it's a new city, so you come out and you don't know which way you're facing, right? Mm-hmm. Or you come out of a subway station, that kind of like a subway station you're not used to coming out at, and all of a sudden you're like, which way am I supposed to be going? And you have to reorient mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. This is what they were kind of studying. And so they were doing this in rats, and <laughs> what they do is really funny. <laughs> it's like um, pin the tail on the donkey. So. They have a rat in a rectangular cage, so two long sides and two short sides. And they put a reward in the one of the corners, so it's a short side, long side corner. Does that make sense? Yep. And the rat learns this cage, and they learn that there's a reward in that corner, right? And they go there and eat it, and they're very excited. Rats love rewards. Um, just like humans, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very much like that. And then what they do is they take the rat out of that cage, they put them on a like spinny platform and put like a hat over them or something to like make it dark. And then they spin them four times clockwise and four times counterclockwise. And so what they were measuring is where the rat would then go and look for the reward. But there was no reward in the second space after no. disorienting no. them. But okay. it would rats always go search the place where rewards have been. If they learn that there's a reward there, uh-huh. they're always going to go search for it. Whether or not it's there mm-hmm. is kind of just like bad luck. sorry rats sometimes there's no reward at the end of the (laughs) experiment but um, (sighs) 
Don't I know it? Yeah. So, do you have any guesses about like where they would go look for this reward? Um, and just in the num- terms of the number of corners, so there's four possibilities of where they're going to go look, right? Right. I would say, depending on where they were put into this, they would go to the corner. Like, this is going to be hard to explain, but let's say the the box is north, south, east, west. Um, the reward was in. Assume hmm? that they're put in the center of the box and like equally facing forwards or backwards. Like there's no, there's no correlation oh, okay. to where they're put in the box. That I was going to say like if, if when in the first time when they were put in the box, if the reward was uh, in the top right, like forwards in front of mm-hmm. them to the right. Yeah. When they're disoriented, even if they were put in backwards, like mm-hmm. facing the bottom of the box, they would still go forwards and right. Yeah. That's what That's, I was going to say. That would be my thought. So yeah. So 50, 50, they searched those two corners. So either like the mm-hmm. top right or the bottom left. It doesn't matter which way they are facing, though. Oh, it, they oh will really? Just, yeah, they they know they based on the, the geometry short... of the box that that's what like the corner that they know the reward is in has to be one of those two corners. Okay. And yeah. they will go fifty fifty to either. That's one of those corners. really clever, honestly. Like I knew that rats were clever, but that's like realizing that if you turn around one hundred eighty degrees, like recognizing that symmetry. That was really clever. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, this is the problem slash um, concept of reorientation, right? So when you're confused and disoriented, you're put in a space that you recognize the environment somewhat. You have there. You look for cues, right, that are going to tell you which way you're facing. Mm-hmm. So they did this again with one of the walls now has like stripes on it. So it breaks the symmetry of those two corners because one wall is stripy. And like they did a bunch of controls. So the rats very much know that wall is stripy. Like they're very aware of it. Um, they know that that wall has a cue on it. And they do this experiment mm-hmm. again. So now guess how often they go to, I guess, one those two corners. I'd say they go 100% of the time to the correct corner. Yeah. You would think that. Yeah. They still go 50-50. Really? Whoa. Yeah. What? Is that... Okay, wait, wait, wait. Is that because... Their place cells fire in... No, the place cells fire in different locations. So, we thought maybe... So, scientists... We're going to go down a whole story of this. So, scientists just thought rats were maybe stupid. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) Poor rats. So, they had to obviously try it with humans, right? And so, they did this with infants, I think, like, in their first year of life. First or second year of life. So, young babies... And mm-hmm. they would have a wall that was, like, covered in velvet and played music and was, like, very exciting for babies. So, like, babies also, like the rats, knew that that wall was there. Babies have you... expensive taste. They like velvet. <laughs> <laughs> Bougie babies. They just like things with texture and soft and interesting yeah. noises, right? Like, babies just want something new. Um, so they knew this wall was there. Infants do the exact really? same thing. 50-50. Wow. That's so weird. I'm, I'm just picturing this experiment where they put a baby on a little, like, spinny thing and a cone yeah, over yeah, them yeah. and spin them around <laughs> and then exactly put the baby do. back in. That's exactly what they do. I'm just imagining all of the vomit that comes off. <laughs> I think they spin them slowly. Like, it's not yeah. a fact. They're not, like... <laughs> like it's not like, a centrifuge. <laughs> yeah, it's not like those um, playground rides where you just, like, spin really, really fast and then you mm-hmm. walk off all disoriented, you know? It's, like, just a slow spin, so they don't they okay. can't visualize All kind right. of which way they're facing where they are anymore you know yeah 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 um I agree. if you do this with human adults obviously human adult humans human adults <laughs> if you do this <laughs> with adult humans adult humans 
see the wall and they know where to go. Right. Unless you give them a really hard task to do at the same time. So you can do this thing with adult humans, which is very, like, demanding for our brains, which all you have to do is, like, if you're listening to an audio track, repeat what the audio track is saying, like, a second delayed. Repeat what the audio track is saying, but a second delayed. You got it. it. (laughs) Listeners can try this at home. You guys can try this at home. Uh, Yes. And so that's, like, like, you have to focus a lot because you're listening and also speaking. Yeah. So if you make adult humans do this and then also this experiment at the same time they go 50 50 you can't you like you lose the ability to integrate the like visual cue of that wall being the different wall the symmetry breaking wall and you just get disoriented and are like it's got to be this corner or this corner and you go to one of those but like with adult humans I don't know very much about those, though. Just, <laughs> I don't know much about adults. I've never been one myself. But I'll do my best to answer the question. <laughs> no, but that's a big difference in the experiment. Like, I when I was training to be an English teacher, somebody told me that the um, term cognitive load, like they're operating yeah. at a high cognitive load, right? Yeah. That they're trying to do something that's really demanding and, like, something that's less demanding but like still take some effort at the same time yeah whereas like what are the rats doing that's so demanding or are they just dumb they just don't integrate the information the same way we do there's like hypotheses about why rats don't integrate visual information into their spatial navigation this is something we're going to talk more about later but it just has to do with the fact that whatever part of the brain is processing the fact that that wall is different is not really processing that information or forwarding it to the cells that decide which corner they're going to search or how they're going to map that space. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not happening for the rats. For us, like the people who did the um, experiment with the humans, it took like this really hard language task to be able to break that symmetry. And so right. like the researcher proposed that it's because that we have like this really verbal language to describe our environment that we're able to integrate now visual information to other parts of our brain mm-hmm. but like that's just a hypothesis and i don't have it like i don't know if it's right or wrong probably not right that's probably okay. more complicated than that we have like we also have very different brains than rats do rats don't have folds at all like rat we have mm. very different our structures our hippocampus doesn't even look the, very much the same like there's a whole bunch of reasons why rats brains might not operate the exact same way human brains do so i think calling them dumb is like not the nicest way of explaining it but certainly like (laughs) they just don't integrate information in the same way we do so but they integrate the information in the same way infants do yeah interesting so the idea is like the visual clue is just the 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 visual cue is not being processed in relation to position yeah like it's just a thing that exists but we don't actually know where it exists kind of thing just in this task in this task of reorienting yourself in in an environment. Like rats can learn visual clues for spaces for different tasks, for different reasons. Like they can learn that on a stripy wall, there is a reward. So they go to the stripy wall, but it's just for like when they're reorienting in a rectangular box, they don't like use the visual information to reorient. That's so weird because like one of our main ways of navigating is by landmarks. It's like 
you go down this street and then you turn left at the pub and then you go straight along until you reach crossroads and then you turn right and then so you know i would argue those are part of the geometric space which rats would use to navigate and so in 2017 like recently i guess a paper came out studying this exact effect and alistair you're gonna love what they discovered because you already brought this up they were recording from place cells when they did this and so they found that if you had a place cell that fired in the top left corner where the reward was, and then you disorient the rat, 50% of the time when you put them back in that space, that place cell will fire in the top left corner, but 50% of the time it's going to fire in the bottom right. And this is going to line up with where they first go and look for the reward. Wow. So if they... So it just flips 180 because the geometric space has a line of symmetry essentially along that line so the place cell doesn't actually know which corner it belongs to yeah. essentially. So for the rats that go to the top left the place cell will fire. For the rats that go to the bottom right this place cell will also fire yeah. because it's mapped to the same place. It's mapping it's so yeah, you're recording the, from the same cell the whole like time. The, it's either going to fire yeah. in the top left corner or the bottom right corner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Depending on pretty much how their spatial map reorients that time. So if it reorients oh, okay. and thinks that the top left corner is the top left corner, it's still going to keep firing so in the top left corner because they're but, symmetrically identical. But if right. they think the bottom right corner is the top left corner, it'll fire there. Yeah, cool. Because they're equivalent, honestly. Like, to be fair, yeah. the place cell is still doing its job because that is the yeah. equivalent space it was firing in before. It doesn't, it can't look down in the box and see, oh, there's like an orientation to this box. <laughs> so, yeah. that's pretty cool. And same with like cells, place cells in like other regions too. They did this. So, like, ones along like the top half of the box would flip and fire on the bottom half if the like geometry was switched, essentially, like if the spatial map was flipped. And they would all do this. They would all flip 180. If it's not like one cell would flip 180 and the other would stay, they would all flip 180 or all not flip 180. Because the whole the whole map, like yeah. the rat's whole map of the box, was flipped. Yeah, but it, essentially, like the maps, the rat's map doesn't actually flip, right? The rat's map is probably still the exact same. It's just the fact that the rat yeah. doesn't know, like the place cells and the rat don't know that that corner is not the same corner. That's so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, like, the conclusion of this is that the spatial geometry of the environment is what's, like, the critical component of creating a spatial map in reorientation, more so than any visual or tactile clues. Because they also, they tried this, obviously, with different types of visual clues, tactile clues as well, which just means, like, you change the um, sort of feel of the floor in certain areas and mm. the reason that they say that this is probably because is because visual and tactile cues in environments change a lot like if you think of a mouse that lives outside and has to live through four different seasons like if you're basing your map off the color of a tree instead of just the shape mm. of that tree like there's one of those things which is way more stable than the other because in some seasons the tree might have moss growing up the side whereas in others it might be covered in snow right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is their like theory for why this is, it's more dependent on the geometry of the space. And also there's some that other um, studies that showed like, so if you take, so if you take like a box and then you start to like round out the corners, so you put like barriers in the corners that create a more round shape, then the place fields are just going to like remap 
eventually you'll get to like a threshold where all of a sudden it's a new place and they remap. Interesting. Wow. Okay. That's so weird. So one of the reasons why people were so interested in studying place cells was because this seemed like it could be like, like I said, we don't know where memory resides. Like we know that the hippocampus is extremely important for it. But how do you study where memory lives? Right. But in some ways, if you think about it, a place cell is a memory because it's in that environment. If it knows an environment, it has a map of it. It's actually always going to fire in that spot when you go back into that environment. So it's holding a memory of a place, which is quite cool. And so there's like they studied kind of different components of place cell firing. And so I told you they only fire when you're in that specific place. But that was a lie. Sorry, guys, I lied. Place cells what? will fire when they're not in their place sometimes. And this has been observed in rats, but again, also kind of humans. So if a rat is exploring an area, place cells are going to fire as it moves through the area, right? But sometimes the rat sits and like doesn't move, right? The rat is just exploring at its own pace and sometimes it's going to stop. And sometimes it'll stop on like a path. And the place cells for like the path going forward will all fire in sequence. And then it's going to go down that path as though it's kind of like oh. predicting its path down that That's... lane, even though it's not moving itself Whoa. yet. And they'll obviously also fire as it moves through them, but it's going to fire the sequence of those place cells. It's going to fire before it even moves. So the rat just sits and kind of looks down the corridor and goes, okay, I think I'm going to go that way. And as it's doing that, it's place cells are all firing. And then as it goes that way, those place cells fire. That's so weird. Wow. So in a sense, it's like predicting its path. This has also been observed. If a rat comes to like a T fork in the maze, it'll stop. And the place cells for like on either side of that T fork are gonna like fire alternately as though it's like deciding which fork to go down. And eventually it'll go down one fork and that place cell will fire. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But then we get into this other really cool feature. And so I'm gonna summarize a really large topic that could probably be its whole episode in <laughs> in one sentence. Welcome to Not Yet Which a is that s- yeah. Sleep is important for learning. <laughs> yes. That's all we're going to say on that. Okay. And so we know this, that if you're trying to teach a rat a task, but you wake it up in certain points of its sleep so that it doesn't get like a proper sleep, it really struggles to learn the task. Feel that. And what we've observed is that if you record from place cells while it sleeps, and in like particular segments of its sleep, mm-hmm. the place cells fire in the sequence that they fired when it was going through the maze or going through the task but way faster so this is called hippocampal replay so essentially the path that it took encoded in the place cells is replaying in its brain as it sleeps wow i'm sorry this is this is too interesting this is far (laughs) too cool i know it's crazy (laughs) it's honestly like crazy when you think about what the brain is doing hippocampal replay is wild yeah this probably plays into kind of my question of like how does it encode and save a place yeah but then we go to so many different places so how does it you know delete or whatever you like dissolve Mm -hmm. different places your guess is honestly as good as mine at this point i think (laughs) (laughs) maybe not as good as like a place cell biologist they might have an even better guess and send in your guesses if you have them but yeah or if you don't if you have a knowledge and not just a guess too um and so my last point on so this idea of memory in place cells is that 
again, we had people who had epilepsy implants in their hippocampus. And so put them in a VR world, had them navigate the world, you can record and there'll be certain cells that fire at certain places. Um, so then they had this like task in the VR world where essentially you had to go and pick up objects from specific places and deliver them elsewhere. And so when they were asked to remember the object, the place cell from near where that object was picked up would fire. So indicating that like, mm -hmm. as they're recalling the object and potentially then where they picked up the object and what it was, that place cell was like, oh, that's me. I was in that place, you know? <laughs> yeah. so. That's so weird. That's so cool. Yeah. So, like, our brain is encoding information not only about the objects that we interact with in our, in our environments, but also where those objects are in space. You can see that being really yeah. useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, like, I mean... Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that mine works as efficiently as I would like it to, given the number of times that I put something down and can't remember where I put it. <laughs> I just, like, the whole... Yeah, the whole concept of place cells and, like, reorientation of memory was so cool to me, because... I could really relate to that feeling of like when you come out of a subway station and have no idea where you are and then suddenly you see something geographically and it all like just whooshes into place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that feeling, the feeling of your place cells all of a sudden all knowing where and when to fire for their places, that's the feeling yeah. of creating the spatial map, right? And we yeah. know, yeah. we kind of know what might actually be happening in the brain when you have that feeling of like, oh, that way's north or that's that street, like that's Queen Street, I know to go down that one. Now I know which way yeah. everything else is also mm -hmm. in this space of like the whole town that I know, yeah. but I don't know which way yeah. I'm facing it. All of a sudden, ah, oh, yes, now I remember. Now I have the map. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And like, I mean, I also don't think it was particularly surprising to this discovery of spatial maps. Cause like, if you think of like a person entering a labyrinth, you would never explore a labyrinth with just like, I mean like keeping track of your left and right turns is important in trying to get out of a labyrinth. But you also, when you're exploring a maze, have a concept of where you would be in relationship either to like the direction that you started walking in. If you knew it was north and you started walking mm -hmm. north, you might have an idea of which way you're still facing or being trying to keep track of more the kind of broader sense of what that environment looks like, aside from the fact that you can't mm -hmm. really see many cues and you're stuck in these borders. Mm -hmm. So really cool stuff. Okay, so yeah, we're coming to the last part of my topic which I didn't actually go into very much depth in because it's not a part of place cells per se but you know when I said that there's other types of cells in the brain so mm -hmm. soon after place cells were discovered we started realizing there were other cells that were also encoding really important parts of navigational things and one of those really cool uh -huh. this one I think is even cooler than place cells and we could maybe do an episode on it another time but I just added it in here because like it's incredibly mind-blowing, um, are called grid cells. So grid cells are similar okay. to place cells in that they fire in specific locations, but they fire in multiple locations. And if you record in a field big enough, you start to see a pattern emerge in where these cells will fire. And so they fire and form a perfectly hexagonal grid. Yay. So I don't know how much you guys know about mapping systems, but a hexagonal map is very much like Catan. So you have hexagons that all fit together, and uh -huh. if you were mo to move from one hexagon to another, it would always just be one space to get to the next hexagon. Right. Yeah. And so hexagonal mapping is actually like quite a bit like of a shorter way to map yeah. spaces because it, it allows you to travel diagonally in one step as opposed mm. to if you're on a Cartesian plane, you have right. to travel diagonally, you have to travel x1, yeah. y1. 
Right. Hexagonal maps yeah. allow you to travel. Diagonal one. And solid state physicists will have something to say about it, which they can send a PhD 32B. Come at me. And Alistair can read it because I just. Um, not clever enough I love to you understand. Physicists. <laughs> I am very willing to hear your critiques of grid <laughs> Bring it. Um, <laughs> probably critiques of maps. And that was a very obviously basic explanation of maps. But that's like, so there's a reason why we think that they encode information hexagonally as a course yeah. to like on a Cartesian coordinate system. And because it like gives you a lot more information in less space. And, and so, so you mean- these grid cells kind of have like interlocking or overlapping grids so that then any one place is represented by a very specific sort of number and intensity of cells grid cells that are firing wow and also as you so these grid cells are actually located in a they're not located in the hippocampus they're located in a piece of cortex that is right next to the hippocampus and has direct connection to the hippocampus Mm -hmm. it's called the entorhinal cortex um, it's kind of on the inner fold of that temporal lobe that we were talking about that's on your side, kind of where your ears are if you're picturing your brain like a helmet on your head. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's the future. So yeah, these like this region has like very obvious connections to the hippocampus, which then makes sense if you think navigationally, you have place cells in the hippocampus and grid cells in the place that's connected to it. Like mm-hmm. that all makes sense. But it's as you go along this entorhinal strip of cortex, you have different modules of grid cells that have different sized grids. So some of them have larger spaced grids and some of them have smaller spaced grids. And then within a module, they're all kind of like offset from each other or overlapping partly. And these grid cells are spatially mapped? Can I add my question on to the end? Because my question was going to be, what does the size represent? And I feel like maybe those two questions are related. I don't know what the size represents at all. It just is the, like the distance between their place fields, the size. So like, one, you might have to travel farther to make that cell fire okay. again, and the other, you'll have to travel less far. But they're still hexagonally okay. located from each other, these fields of firing, this firing right. pattern. But, like, if I... So, like, um, with these grid cells, if you go to the left by one uh, place, unit, unit um, <laughs> yeah. do you see a shift in the firing to the left? Like, that's what I mean, is it mapped? Or is it just... It's, it's just the pattern is consistent so like if you're in a closed square environment right Mm -hmm. there will be one cell a grid cell that maps a grid of places throughout that environment and it doesn't matter where you move in that environment if you move into something that is mapped by that grid cell that grid cell will fire oh okay but the grid itself doesn't move at all so there's one hexagon yeah okay so there's one hexagon that maps like one room in your Mm -hmm. house for example yeah kind of but like so like that one cell maps that room in that size and orientation of a grid. So say like, like picture like a soccer ball with like, I know soccer balls aren't exactly hexagonal shapes, but they like have interlocking black or white spaces mm-hmm. or like, a, yeah, mm-hmm. you, if you walk along this soccer ball, you'll eventually get to another black space where the neuron fires. Then you're going to walk through a few white ones. Then you're going to get through the black space again where that neuron fires. So it's like repeating constantly. Do you mean, do you mean like as you physically walk in space? Yeah. Uh, a neuron yeah. will fire or not fire or fire or not fire. Exactly. And this pattern of firing, not firing is a hexagonal grid. 
Right. So all of these spots can be located from each other the same distance in, like, hexagonal grid space. So that's just diagonal lines and X lines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is different than a place cell, because a place cell is encoded to a very specific place and only that place. Exactly. And it will probably, you'll never see it fire again in a different place. Mm. Unless you have a very big space, probably. That's mm-hmm. weird and also very really cool. cool. Um, so that's grid cells. And grid cells do have like direct connections to the hippocampus. So it is very speculated that grid cells are part of the reason why place cells have such specific firing spots. Because, because you have kind of overlapping and interlocking grids modulated by all of the different grid cells then there will be kind of like a combination of cells, grid cells, that fire in one spot, which could potentially be what's creating that place cell to fire in that one spot. Mm-hmm. But the issue with this is that grid cells, if you look at developmental biology, when the baby animal, I guess, is born, place cells are determined really fast. So like almost immediately they get their kind of place fields and place cells, but grid cells don't kind of consolidate as quickly. Hmm. Oh, that's weird. Interesting. Okay. Do you know why that is? No, we don't know why that is. I, I don't know why that is. I mean, I don't think people know why that is. It, development is weird and complex, and it takes a while for some neurons to like learn their very specific firing patterns. So I was telling you how place cell fields disintegrate in the dark, right? We mm-hmm. kind of brought this mm-hmm. up at the beginning. So like, if you put a rat in the dark for long enough, eventually the place cells don't know where or when to fire, because presumably they can't see the geometry of the environment anymore we don't like but they'll so they don't they lose their like beautiful precise firing fields but the grid Mm. cells don't the grid cells do not care if you can see your environment or not they will always fire in those grids and so it's assumed or thought i guess postulated that these grid cells are involved in dead reckoning which is what you were talking about earlier alistair dead reckoning is the ability to navigate without external cues so this is just walking around in the dark and trying to like feel or know like how far you've gone so where you are next and like what obstacles mm-hmm. since you know presumably where there are mm-hmm. obstacles in that environment then based on where you think you are because of how far you've traveled what obstacles are around you so grid cells are probably highly involved in this process of navigating in the dark and like being able to keep track of kind of approximately where you are located that's I'm I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm honestly so speechless. Yeah. I just had a weird thought about how like maybe we're all living in a simulation <laughs> because I was thinking about VR. <laughs> Bear with me here. I was thinking about VR and how they've developed like a treadmill, a two-dimensional treadmill, so that because when you play a VR game, like you can't really walk around in a full environment because you're limited by the space of the room that you're in playing the game. Mm-hmm. But if you're mm-hmm. on a treadmill of I don't know, Mm -hmm. hexagonal square or hexagons that move around and repeat, then you can walk ad infinitum. So the fact that, like, your brain, the grid cells maintain their firing Mm -hmm. pattern even in the dark, that's a weird connection that Mm -hmm. even if you don't have the visual cue of your environment, your brain is still, you know, I put this cell and Mm -hmm. this cell and, you know, one foot in front of the other and the pattern is still there. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild. This is so weird. Honestly, this is such a good advert for like video games. I've been so stigmatized for so long. Like I don't play video games. I don't have a strong interest in it, but like 
honestly, all of this, like, it's going to rot your brain and it's going to turn you into thugs and, like, makes you violent. And, like, no, actually, it's just a really good way of yeah. understanding neuroscience. Yeah. A few other cell types. Border cells. Can you guess what those do? Do they, oh, do they, like, fire when you're near a boundary? A boundary of something? Yep. They fire when you're near the boundary cool. of the environment. Does that, Ooh. so, like, walls and edges and... Yeah, I I assume that is the case. Or even obstacles, yeah. I think, too. There's, like, obstacle cells. So, like, your, like, brain is mapping the shape of where you can go and where you can't go, essentially, in this way. This has really interesting implications for, like, or, like, uh, parallels to video game development, where you can, like, you know, you develop a floor, but then, like, you put in object detection at the walls so that you can't go into yeah. a wall and stuff. Yeah, it's honestly yeah. super cool to, like, think about this in terms of not not actual real space environments. Like, if you just think about this in terms of um, video games and VR, is the fact that, like, our brain is probably also mapping those the exact same way. And, like, when you, like, memorize, like, a video yeah. game map. So, yeah. And you know which, you know where your character is oriented in that space. It's probably just very similar or the same cells that are responsible for the job of, like, making sure your virtual person can navigate, too. And this is also incredibly yeah. interesting. Again, back to the bats. So we know that they have 3D place fields, but there was another study that found that not only do they have these, like, three-dimensional place cells for themselves but they have place cells that represent the positions of other bats. So it's like oh, social place cells. That's cool. I know. I told oh, like I told you like place cells were the first, but then like, oh man. <laughs> there's yeah. like this field exists yeah. so with like very yeah. there's another type of cell that I wanted to bring up called head direction cells. So these cells fire based on exactly <laughs> which way like your head is facing. That's Oh, wow, that's cool. That's so weird. So it's, like, believed or, like, assumed that all of these weird different cells that represent not only your environment, but your location in it and your orientation in it are really what's responsible for spatial navigation and spatial maps. So some people have done, like, some MRI studies of, like, looking at, like, voxels of activation within the hippocampus. Okay. as people navigate virtual environments or things like this mm -hmm. and have linked it to place cells and place memory but yeah it's like it would be very difficult next to yeah, impossible okay. to like yeah. actually yeah. measure these specific cells so unfortunately we don't really know but like right. we can kind of like based on what we do know and how it works in animals we really can like it starts to help us understand like how how navigational systems develop and like yeah how you could entrain them to be really good at navigating based on very specific geometric or spatial cues mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I gotta say, I'm never going to be able to go through IKEA the same way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just thinking about thinking about all this research that was done with rats in mazes <laughs> and their spatial orientation. I'm gonna go through the maze of uh -huh. IKEA and just think about all the place cells that are firing, especially because Ikea is set up like mini homes, it is. like mini environments and stuff. And so like, and, and you pick up objects. And it has very specific walkways and paths yeah. that go left, yeah. right, through different areas. If they took those yeah. out. And there's the reward at the end of the meatballs. <laughs> if they took those out, would you be able to head straight to the meatballs? That's yeah. the question. And, well, and, also, and also, I bet you like, 
you could do a really cool study where people shop at Ikea and then you ask them about the items that they bought and yeah. you probably see that the place sells fire from the place where they picked up the object, That's you know? So they picked clever. up the herdebarge to bury <laughs> and they like, you know... <laughs> They picked up the mouth and it fires in the bed section. Exactly. Yeah, honestly, probably. Yeah. It is probably <sighs> likely that that is exactly what's happening. <laughs> so next time you go to Ikea, yeah. just think about those places. I start recruiting people for my study at Ikea. Hi, are you willing to uh, let me record from your brain as you walk through the store? <laughs> <laughs> stick, stick electrodes yeah. into your Yikes. brain. Yikes. So do you have a quiz for us? I always forget to make a quiz, but... I will absolutely I'm improvise. I'm always here that. for the quizzes. <laughs> we, uh, or at least I am a very competitive person, so. Yes. Uh, give me your buzzers. Bing! That's my place self firing. Uh, mine is. Ooh, wee, ooh, wee, ooh. <laughs> uh, because the the cells are in the shape of a triangle, and you know what else is in the shape of a triangle? The Illuminati. So. Oh man. <laughs> People are gonna suspect we're sponsored by the Illuminati now. And if the Illuminati exists and wants to pay for our account, for our podcast, like, honestly, we can discuss that. I won't say yes off the bat, but we could definitely discuss. We are accepting sponsorships. If you haven't already got our email address from the number of times we've said it in this episode, then honestly, you're not a very good Illuminati, and we're not sure that we want to hear Um, from you. Exactly. Obviously, you haven't listened to the episode. But also follow us on Instagram yeah. and Facebook. Follow us yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, like we also have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can get if it. If you're an Illuminati member, but you exclusively use Twitter, you can find us on Twitter, yeah. too. Don't worry. Uh, okay, great. So, quiz. Um, okay, so my first question of the quiz is... We've gone through a lot of material, I realize. Yeah. So, um, I get to ask a lot of really hard questions. Um, where is the hippocampus, and what is it known for? <laughs> <laughs> you guys are like I like exact same time, so I'm just gonna pick at random, which means Beth. Okay, it's in deep within your brain. It's like yeah. if you go in the middle of your head, on the top of your head, like in the middle, and you like burrow down underneath the cortex, which is like the outer layer, which is the bit that's all wrinkly. It like sits there. Alistair, do you have anything to add? I will add that it is important for the processing of memories. I would specify that it's like kind of like horn shaped or like seahorse shaped oh, according right, yeah. to the Greek, but it doesn't look that much like a seahorse. It's curved and it curves like out the side beneath our temporal lobes to the front. So I would really, yeah, if you go in through the sides, you would get there probably much faster. But technically it does start kind of in the center and okay. curve out. Okay, oh. great. Hippocampus. That was a question. <laughs> um, question two. Who discovered place cells? And what are place cells for our listeners who are just tuning in? O'Brien. Beth. Bing! Sorry. No. Wrong. O'Brien. Wrong answer. But close. You got the first bit right. Alistair. It was O'Keel. So close. <laughs> I'm so sorry to this Nobel Prize winner. His name is O'Keefe. <laughs> O'Keefe! Oh. <laughs> um, oh. Sorry, sir. I'm not very good at names. What does it do? Is that the yeah. second half of the question? Please. Can I bing in again? Sure. They fire when you're in a very specific location. But it's like one location to one cell... But then that also changes when you're in a different environment that that cell will then um, fire again 
at a different location. Yeah, exactly. In a different that's, environment. That's what they do. Sometimes they don't fire at all. Sometimes they're just like, nah, I don't belong in this environment. Um, and yeah, so John O'Keefe, not that we discussed his first name earlier. John O'Keefe. John O'Keefe, right. Play Cells, Nobel Prize winner, along with nice. the discoverers of grid cells as well, actually. So they shared the Nobel Prize for navigation. Okay, last question if you want it to be. We normally do three questions, but we can do a bonus question at the end. Okay, so in the behavioral experiment where you spin a rat or an infant or a human <laughs> animal around, can you tell me what happens in each case when they try and reorient themselves? <laughs> okay, you guys can alternate describing them. So. Okay, so in the case of a rat, uh, they will 50-50 go to the corner that is geometrically identical um, to where the reward was. Yeah, and that's the same with human infants. And what about human adults? They will pick the correct corner if there is a visual cue. Um, but if you distract the adults with a <gasps> complex task, then they will pick 50-50. And it should be mentioned that the rats and the babies, even if there's a visual cue, will still 50-50 pick the geometrically yep. similar corner. Yep. Yeah. That's, an important That's exactly it. You guys, look at you. You're a neuroscientist. <laughs> it's so Cutting cool. neuroscientists. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you guys enjoyed the episode. Um, yeah. yeah. Thanks for participating and being so flabbergasted at some of this stuff, which is, like, honestly, super, super cool. Yeah. It's super, I'm, I'm yeah. honestly like, not going to be able to walk around my house the same way again. It's hard to believe, right? Yeah. 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 I'm going to be thinking about my brain, which is very much the <laughs> definition of biology. Uh, Welcome to the club. <laughs> a bunch of cells studying themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, this podcast is brought to you by us, the PhD3, which includes me. My name is Sienna. My name is Beth. And my name is Alistair. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen to Ellison on Bandcamp. He's got this great outro music. He made it. That's going on right now. So let that just fade you out back into wherever you are. By the way, this is our last biology episode for season one. So thank you for listening this far and sticking with us. <laughs> <laughs>